0: The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. On with the show.
1: Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. We have two... Very powerhouse interviews today. First up, former basketball star of the NBA, James Donaldson, entrepreneur James Donaldson, and also mayoral candidate James Donaldson. We'll talk about his NBA career, fascinating subjects that he brings up. And secondly, we'll also address some of the issues he's had in the last seven or eight years, and they haven't been so good, very challenging to say the least. So he is very forthright about it. I think you will really gain from hearing what he has to say. Second up will be Victoria Woodards, and she is the mayor of Tacoma. As a matter of fact, she was just re-elected. We'll talk about the challenges facing Tacoma. I mean, you see Tacoma really bustling now and uh, a lot of growth in that area. Let's get right to it. My interview with James Donaldson coming up in just a moment.
2: When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now, Voices of Experience of is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Basketball star, entrepreneur, and
1: mayoral candidate James Donaldson is with us. James Donaldson has had a roller coaster existence for the last decade many highs, and certainly some very deep lows. We'll talk about both during this interview. He played basketball for the Washington State University Cougars and was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics in 1979. He played with the San Diego Clippers, who then moved to L.A. and became the L.A. Clippers. He moved on to the Dallas Mavericks, where many people say, including him, was his best years in basketball. He then uh, played with the New York Knicks, Utah Jazz, and wound up his career in Europe. I asked James who was the best player that he ever played against. And uh, it's interesting, the NBA put together the best players of all time in NBA history, and there were like 50 of them. And James Donaldson played against 37 of them. So I think he has a pretty good idea. But let's start with James Donaldson and his early years.
3: I grew up in Sacramento, California. My dad went to Travis Air Force Base for a few years, so he grew up on the base, and then he retired from Travis and moved the family to Sacramento, where I basically went to elementary school and grew up from there.
1: And then how did you find Pullman, Washington, or did George Raveling find you, or did you find George Raveling?
3: Uh, It was more of a case of them finding me. I only played my last year of high school basketball as a competitive basketball player, so that was my first and only year in high school. It was my senior year. And, you know, I was just starting to get into uh, a little bit of knowledge about the game. And, of course, growing up in Sacramento, we heard all about the great UCLA teams. And uh, so I wanted to play in the Pac-8. I knew that much. I didn't know much about anything else, but I knew I wanted to play in the Pac-8. And I did have some interest from Stanford and from Cal, but it was a real smidgen of interest. George Ravlin and his coaching staff discovered me. I guess my high school coach had bumped into George Ravling several years prior and gave George a call and just said, hey, you know, I've got a seven-foot kid here that uh, he's raw and he's green, but he's willing to listen and willing to work hard and maybe you might want to take a, take, a, take a chance on him. And so Coach Mark Edwards, who was the assistant coach at the time with George, is the one who scouted me and uh, invited me up to Pullman matter of fact I had mark on my podcast last week he's over at Washington University in st. Louis just finishing up a, a stellar basketball career there coaching Mark was reminiscing about how he first met me and how I first came up to Pullman back in 1975 right after graduation from high school and never never left you know I just kept on developing kept on working and Uh, The rest, as they say, is
1: history. And you uh, left uh, with the Pac-12 Hall of Fame honor. Plus, you were in the Mm -hmm. WSU Athletic Hall of Fame. So, no small accomplishments there. Ah. So, that's great because I'm a Cougar. Really enjoyed when you were drafted by the Sonics in 1979. Then you played a stint Mm -hmm. with the uh, San Diego Clippers, became the LA Clippers. Dallas Mavericks, which I understand... uh, you felt and people observing you felt those were your golden years in the NBA. And then you played for the Knicks and the Utah jazz. And then you went into the European basketball league and played in Europe. So some of those highlights and when you were playing for the Sonics and, and some of those, uh, I I threw those all in together to kind of give an overview of your career. Can you talk about some of that?
3: Well, I think, Breaking in with the Sonics and Lenny Wilkins was probably the best possible scenario for me coming into the NBA. I wasn't quite good enough to make the team the first year, and 79 is when they won their NBA championship. For me to come to training camp and try to make the team on a world championship team was, was, was just been totally in vain. There, there's no way they're going to cut, cut an established championship player. And keep me. I was a fourth round pick. They had two first round picks, uh, James Bailey and Vinnie Johnson at that time. And so I elected to go over to Italy my very first year uh, as a professional, 1980, and played there for one season and really got a chance to develop and play, play 40 minutes a night and get, get the double figure points and rebounds and, and blocking shots and things. So that's where I really developed as a professional player over there. Then I came back in uh, 1980 and tried out for the Sonics during training camp and made the team then. So I, I think that was the best possible scenario, the best possible team for me to break in with because the guys were established veterans. They were championship quality Guys like Fred Brown and JJ took me under their wing and just really groomed me and worked with me every day. Back to the basket moves and rebounding, blocking shot drills, all kind of stuff every single day for the first two years I was there. And then I was able to break into the what they call the Winnebago wall back then. Myself at center and Jack Sigma at power forward and Lonnie Shelton at small forward. So we had a big, big imposing physical front line along with uh, Gus Williams. And uh, uh, we went through a, a succession of you know, rotating the two-guard. Oh, Paul Westfall, David Thompson, Phil Smith, all those guys came through and, at the two-guard position. But that, that was the team for the three years I was there.
1: Wow, what are teams to be on? I remember when you were playing at that time. question is, uh, I was really surprised when Dennis Johnson was traded coming yeah. off the championship seasons. Do you think uh, Lenny Wilkins ever regretted that?
3: I think there is a tinge of regret with that. Uh, you know, of course, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, DJ was a young and confident, uh, somewhat cocky player. And he just wanted, you know, more attention. He more, wanted more recognition. He wanted the opportunity to go and play for another coach, another team and we granted him the wish. So we traded him down to Phoenix for Paul Westfall. Westfall was at the tail end of his career when he came in, and he didn't do much. We brought in David Thompson the next year, and David, David Thompson was at the end of his career and didn't do much. And Phil Smith from Golden State Warriors came in. So the three years I was there, we had a different two-guard every single year. I wish I would have had a chance to play with DJ um, because he turned out to be... Uh, just a wonderful competitor and uh, all-NBA player, uh, defensively especially. But he turned out to be quite quite the team leader as well as he matured.
1: Yeah, I was really kind of um, sickened when I'm watching the Celtics win those NBA championships and Dennis Johnson being so much a part of it going, okay, but it's interesting, he wanted out too. He wanted to go to other teams.
3: I wasn't there, but from what I hear and talking to the guys back then, uh, they they all missed Dennis tremendously. I mean, J.J. Uh, and Fred and, and Sigma and Lonnie and all those guys, Gus, they missed him tremendously. I didn't know him. I didn't play with the, uh, D.J., but I would hear the conversations and the the wishfulness that D.J. was still part of the team. So I, I think it was a mutual parting, um, and it might have been some reluctance on both sides, but it was just one of those things that, almost had to happen i guess i don't know
1: yeah sports and egos and all that and money it all kind of wasn't the first time that happened and it won't be the last time of course did i get it right about dallas mavericks that observers think that you had your best years there you went to the all-star game and mavericks certainly were competitive i think they what uh you almost won the western championship against the los angeles lakers
3: yes that's right yeah well, this was after a three-year pit stop with L.A. Clippers and San Diego Clippers, San Diego first, and then we moved to L.A., which was just uh, one of the most interesting experiences of my career. I mean, here I am on a very, very star-studded, talented team, and we were struggling to win 30 games a year uh, with the Clippers. Uh, guys like you know Bill Walton and Terry Cummings and Jerome Whitehead, Norm Nixon, Derek Smith. Craig Hodges, uh, Michael Brooks. We had we had guys, all star players at every position, and we couldn't win thirty games a year with the Clippers and geez, year after year. We had a new coach every single year, coming in a new coaching staff, and so you know it was kind of a, a disillusioning time in my career. I was still young. I was just three years into the league at that point when I got traded from Seattle to San Diego. And so I was still a young player, but I got a chance to really play a lot with the Clippers because Bill Walton was unreliable and he was injured a lot and all these things. And so I was out there as a full-time player, just starting to learn the game of the professional game of basketball. And then when I got traded to the Mavericks in 1985, uh, I told people, hey, I've died and gone to heaven. This is tailor-made for me, and I was exactly what the Mavericks were looking for. Uh, A big player in the middle who can block shots, who can rebound, who can score on occasion, uh, because the Mavericks never had that. They were called a, a donut team, basically, because they had a hole in the middle, they called it. Uh, Great offensive players on all the other positions, but they just couldn't get anything going in the middle. And I fit right into there so nicely that 1985, 86, 87, 88, in 89, we had tremendous teams in Dallas and we almost upended the uh, Los Angeles Lakers, 1988, Western conference finals, uh, Western conference championship in, uh, in seven games, but we lost the seventh game and that was, That was kind of the beginning of the end for the Mavericks.
1: And then you rounded off your career, the Knicks and the Utah Jazz, and then you went to Europe to play basketball. Is that correct?
3: True. I got traded in 92, midway through the season, to the Knicks. Uh, Played with another great team, uh, Pat Riley and the New York Knicks, uh, Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, uh, John Starks, uh, all those great players back then. Uh, We made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, and we lost in seven games to Michael Jordan and the Bulls in 92. Uh, 93, I went overseas and played for a year or two. Uh, I went to Greece, I believe, and then came back and played with the Utah Jazz for a year, and then back over to Italy to play in the Italian League and then back to the NBA one more year with the Utah Jazz, uh, 1996. Uh, And then I went back to to Europe for the next four years. So I played six years overseas and 14 years in the NBA, 20-year career.
1: I read something or heard something that of the 50... NBA players who are the best of all time that you said that you played against 37 of them. I heard that in another interview. That's incredible.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I played during the golden era of NBA basketball, 1980 to 1996, my career was, uh, with a couple of those years overseas. Uh, And this was the year, 1980 was when, uh, well, actually 1979, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird came in. Uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was still at his prime. Dr. Jay and Moses Malone from the ABA. Uh, and all through the 80s, uh, the rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers was just phenomenal. Uh, I think they won six or seven, maybe eight of the championships in that decade between the two teams. So you had to get, you had to get by them. And in the 90s, of course, you had to get by uh, Chicago Bulls. Uh, with Michael Jordan and all those other great players. So, yes, I played against 37 of the original uh, all-time greatest 50 NBA players ever. And it was just fantastic time to be playing professional
1: basketball. Who do you consider to be the best player of all time out of those players that you went up against?
3: I think the average fan might look at uh, the spectacular players like uh, Michael Jordan or Charles Barkley or somebody. I say it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, the most unstoppable shot in the history of the game. Uh, pr- probably the, one of the most consistent players. 24, 25 points every single night for for 20 years until he tailed off the last couple of years of his career. And just, just a magnificent athlete uh, who was so graceful to be a big guy. Uh, so picture perfect with that shot. Uh, I think he was, you know, to me, the greatest of all time, and he doesn't get enough credit when people talk about the goat. You know, they automatically go to Magic and and uh, you know Wilt or uh, oh, who else? LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, these guys. But no, no, you, they didn't see the body of work over 22 years that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar put together, and. And believe me, I played against him one-on-one, uh, face-to-face, body-to-body, and there was absolutely nothing you can do with him uh, on most nights, more than most nights. You just cannot slow him down or stop him.
1: Very interesting because obviously we all know that he was a great ball player. But I didn't think that is the player that you would mention. It would be the others, almost everybody you mentioned up to that point. That That's pretty amazing. What a tribute to him because, uh, again, I wouldn't have thought that. And also, he is so intellectual and brilliant. Um, that's what yeah. um, I really respect about him, too. He's so much beyond the NBA, kind of like you. And that is yeah. what phasing into this part of the interview is that after you retired from the NBA, you opened a – Donaldson Clinic or clinics around the area. What was your goal there? Well, you know,
3: back in 89, I believe it was, uh, I had a real serious knee injury, a ruptured patella tendon in my right knee, Uh, career-threatening. Matter of fact, we didn't know if I'd come back from that or not. And um, I went through six or eight months of physical rehabilitation, physical therapy, with the team doctors and the athletic trainers, nutritionists, physical therapists, and they put me back together again. I was able to come back and play another 10 years on a surgically repaired knee at very much the level I was always at. You know, Of course, I was getting a little bit older, but I was still pretty much able to do a lot of things I was able to do. That, that woke me up to the world of physical therapy, and even then, I still went on and played 10 more years, but back in 1989, I decided to open up the Donaldson clinic because I just knew that's what I want to do when I retire. I want to be able to roll up my pant leg and show people, uh, you know, a 12 inch long scar in my knee and say, Hey, I, I put myself back together again. You can put yourself back together again. And so the idea was to go out and start up the clinics and have it matured and ready to, ready to go when I retire. So I can just kind of roll right into it. Uh, During the off seasons for those 10 years, um, I was going to school, uh, doing all my prerequisites for physical therapy. I wanted to become a physical therapist. I was at the clinic every day, working with people and doing things that I could do. So um, that, that was the ideal. And we had up to five locations at one time. And my two I was most passionate about, I mean, our big corporate office was up in mill creek but the two i was most passionate about was the one in seattle central seattle on 22nd and jackson and one on the hilltop in tacoma where i just really uh invested myself heavily into the communities the underserved communities the uh you know the uh, low income low education uh you know overlooked communities african-american communities especially And to be a positive role model for the communities that I just loved so much and cared so much for really meant the world to me. Um, Those two clinics never did cash flow profitably. I mean, we subsidized a lot with Mill Creek up in Mill Creek, but I was in Tacoma for seven years on the hilltop and Seattle for five years right there in central Seattle, Uh, Hiring from the community, giving opportunities to the community and serving the community and being a positive African-American role model for the youth of the community, which is really what I wanted to do. So we ran the Donaldson Clinic for 28 years until 2018. And um, so we had a nice, nice long run. And I think it was, you know, probably one of the most rewarding parts of my of my life.
1: Yeah, and then around that time, too, if that's not enough, you also had a serious life-threatening uh, surgeries at that time, correct? Like, about 2017?
3: Yes, that was 2015. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, and I was 57 years old at the time, so I was still in great shape. I'm I'm in the gym six days a week. Uh, you know, I'm running and jogging three or four days, three or four miles at a time. Uh, so I was in great shape and had absolutely no physical ailments or issues or anything. And then one day I'm out trying to play around the golf with some friends. And I noticed that I just wasn't feeling good. I was sweating profusely. I was nauseous. I was lightheaded, uh, you know, seemingly disoriented. And I told the guys, I said, I just, I don't think I can play today. And I took a quick drive over to my doctor to see what was going on. And I remember vaguely seeing his reception counter and then everything just went black. Um, And I woke up two weeks later in intensive care over at Cherry Hill Swedish Hospital. Um, The doctors did a quick diagnostic scan on me when I fell out, when when everything went black. Determined it was my heart and threw me into the ambulance and uh, opened me up as soon as I got to surgery for a 12 hour uh, emergency open heart surgery for an aortic dissection, uh, which, you know, only 2% of the people who have these kind of symptoms and and issues survive. So I'm a two (laughs) percenter, apparently. It was wild, I mean, out of nowhere, it just, and and my whole world just changed and went upside down from that point, uh, which I write about in my book. And, you know, I ended up losing everything and having to write myself again and get back on track again, and it took about five years to do that.
1: In that time, you lost your businesses. Uh, your wife left you with your stepchild, and uh, things got really low for you, didn't they?
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, they really did. You know, I lost my home, which I had lived in for forty years over in Magnolia. I lost my income from my business. I lost the business. I spent. All my NBA savings, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars I had saved up for retirement, I had poured it all into my business, keeping it going as long as I possibly could. I ended up filing for bankruptcy and going through foreclosure on my home, and lost my home. And so there I was, you know, with a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of thoughts of ending, ending my life. At that point, this is 2018. And, um, you know, I guess, but for the grace of God, you know, I'm still here. It took me 12 months to work through that, that total darkness of depression and despair and, and suicidal ideations. But, you know, I, I had sense enough to reach out to my doctor and see what was wrong with me. Uh, I thought I just had a sleeping issue and he's going to give me some sleeping medication to help me go to sleep at night. But he he quickly diagnosed me with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideations and got me help right away, Uh, a behavior health counselor, medication, prescription medication, uh, you know, and I pulled together a small intimate group of friends and people who had known me for 30 or 40 years, uh, including Lenny Wilkins and George Raveling and calling those guys, you know, and them calling me and checking in on me and supporting and helping me. It was a really really tough 12 months and I'd never wish that on my worst enemy, but I finally finally made it through and the darkness started lifting towards the t- towards the end of 2018.
1: And didn't um the suicide of Tyler Henlinsky really was a major motivation factor for you to get in and try to help other people?
3: Yeah, it really was. Well, and to try to help me too, I mean, uh, Tyler took his life in January, 2018. This was kind of in the real depths of my depression and darkness. And the next week or two, everyone's running around trying to tell Tyler's story for him, you know, how great a kid he was and how much he had to live for and no one saw it coming. And it just really resonated with me in a way that said, wait a minute. I don't want people out there trying to tell my story. I mean, I, I, I got to make it through this so I can tell my story. I've got a story to tell. And that really motivated me to, to just be doggedly determined to work my way through this thing, no matter how long it took. I didn't know it was going to take 12 months. It might have taken 12 years, but I was still going to hang in there and just keep on pushing and pushing and try to make my way through. And when I made it through, that's when I've been able to tell my story. You know, starting up my foundation, doing a lot of speaking engagements, writing books, blogging every day about mental health awareness and suicide prevention. So I'm very, very active in this space now because I'm here to tell my story.
1: Well, you're a big man, but this is by far, in my estimation, the biggest thing you've ever done because you are really going to help a lot of people already have. And especially, I think I've read that you've said, and I think it's very accurate, that men have a really difficult time because we're supposed to be really tough and handle it. And especially an athlete, for crying out loud. I mean, quit your whining and get in the corner, right? And just suck it up, right? So you're going to show some light there to people that because of you, that you, it's okay if you have these um, issues and come out and talk about it, and there's hope, and you've shown that.
3: that that's exactly right. I've had men call me from all over the country, uh, New Jersey and Florida and, and Utah and California, and these, these guys, they've seen my story on social media. I, I, haven't, been, I haven't been shy about sharing my story and continually put it out there and let people know that, hey, this kind of stuff can happen to anybody. I mean, most people think it's self-induced or self-inflicted self, self uh, inflicted, uh, depression and those kind of things with substance abuse or alcoholism or those kind of things. But no, mine was a series of life events that came one after another after another and just became almost too much. And so men have called me and I really appreciate this. Men have called me, um, to talk to me and said, James, Hey, I used to be an athlete. I used to have everything going on. I had a business, I had a wife, I lost everything. And you can just hear the fear in their voices. And, and and I'm there for them. I let them know, Hey, I've been through the same thing and it's okay. I'm so glad you reached out to talk to me about these things. And, we continue these conversations for weeks and weeks on end with about half a dozen men so far since, since the holidays uh, last December, uh, which are a notoriously difficult time for people, the holidays because everyone's off being joyous and celebrating. And here you are sitting in a funk of depression and you can't get out of your own way. And so, that's what. That's the kind of work I've been doing the last three months or so is really working with men um, and just helping them through these very, very difficult, dark times.
1: What surprises you about, let's say, the men you have worked with, anything you didn't know about uh, your, your own personal situation? Of course, you know a great deal about it, but are you learning yeah. things from their struggles?
3: Yeah, you know, a lot of them, uh, there seem to be, combinations of what's going on uh, i didn't have any substance abuse issues or alcohol issues i don't i don't drink i don't do drugs never have never will but a lot of these men they've had those kind of issues or so they are still having those kind of issues and and those kind of things just exacerbate the problem uh, because you know I, I tell you what paul i mean i was so much not in my right mind, uh, that one of the ways I thought of killing myself was suicide by cop. Now I've always been a friend to the police and the police have always been friend to me. I've never thought of injuring anybody like that, but I thought if I just go out there and wrestle with a police officer, try to take his gun, they'll shoot me dead. That's one way out of this world. Now, who, who in the right mind thinks this way? I mean, I I look back on that time now and say, I can't even imagine thinking that way nowadays, you know, but back then when you're in this midst of these mental issues and challenges, you're just not thinking straight. And so you have to get rid of some of the things that you can control or you can get help controlling uh, drugs. You have to abstain from them or put them away or, uh, drinking and alcohol is a really big one for so many of us, especially during the pandemic. Uh, alcoholism has gone off the charts. Um, those kind of things, if you can, can can minimize some of those external things, then you can start focusing on you, the internal, and start to get that well. And once you start getting your internal self well, you're able to start uh, balancing yourself out again and getting your foot back on solid ground again.
1: Good to know. Your foundation, yourgiftoflife.org. Is that correct? Yes, it is. All one word. And the people wanted to uh, go to your website, which is really quite well done. So what can you you you. provide with the, let's say starting with the website and of course your book too, um, what would they find Mm -hmm. if they come to your uh, website?
3: Well, you'll find the website and I I get contacted from folks all over the country who want to add additional resources to the website, which I gladly do if they pertain to mental health and all the things I'm working with. So I have a helpful resources button on the website that you can click on. Uh, The website really is a conduit for uh, resources. And so I'm not a mental health professional, I, although I am, I am getting my behavior health certification now uh, so I can actually coach and counsel people more in a professional manner. Right now with the men I've been working with, like I said, I've been basically a life coach more than anything. I can't call myself a mental health professional until I actually am one. But the website is a, is a great resource for where I can direct people once they contact me if they have difficulty with ADHD or or PTSD or bipolar disorders, uh, there's all kind of resources on the website that I'm listing. uh, Every week I update it and keep on adding more things to it. Uh, The website also gives me a a platform. The, uh, The foundation gives me a platform where I can go out, and now that the pandemic is easing up a little bit, Uh, I can resume my speaking engagements all over the country, which is what I really like doing, speaking to uh, groups of students and student-athletes, especially middle school on up, uh, university students, uh, businesses and corporations, athletic teams. uh, And that's what I want to get back into, uh, perhaps beginning of next school year, when the pandemic hopefully is finally behind us. And so this gives me a platform to be able to do that. I can schedule all the, all the events, I can, I, can, I can book different speaking engagements and things. Uh, and so that's what the foundation does. Uh, and the beneficiary of the foundation, uh, because I found out myself going to uh, my behavioral health counselors, I went through two different ones, that there just aren't enough behavior health and mental health professionals of color in the mental health professional field. Uh, Only about 1% of the tens of thousands of mental health professionals in the country are of color only 1%. And so this is a big reason why so many of our communities of color are so reluctant to reach out for mental health, mental health, help, when they need to, because there's nobody on the other side of the desk that looks like them or that can relate to them or that really understands some of the cultural issues and nuances that are there for people of color. Uh, My first mental health uh, behavior health counselor was a a young Caucasian female, probably in her mid-20s, fresh out of mental health school, wherever, wherever they go for their licenses. And she had absolutely no way to relate to me, uh, a middle aged African American competitive athlete man. She, her best advice to me at one point, and I got so infuriated, was to go home and count sheep at night so I can get to sleep.
1: I and so. And here's my bill.
3: Yes, oh, I'm telling you, this, this infuriated me, Paul. I so. guess.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, that's just uh, I, stunningly naive
3: right but she had no idea what to do with somebody like me so i want to use the foundation my speaking engagements my book sales my my corporate sponsors the money goes into an account for scholarships to students of color going into mental health professional degrees we want to be able to provide You know, a a handful of scholarships, full ride scholarships, every single year, to make sure these kids go into the field, and then go back to their communities that they come from, and be able to provide these wonderful services that are much, much needed, and are so seldom utilized because, like I said, there's nobody that they can relate to, that they trust with their innermost, most intimate feelings. And that's what that's all about. So that's what the Your Gift of Life Foundation will be doing as we move forward.
1: You know, you're just talking there. I remember a story from Dr. Martin Luther King, and it was back in the late 1950s. And it was a he recited um, this in a speech when he was doing a book signing, or he was somewhere when somebody came up and tried to kill him with a like a penknife or mm-hmm. something. Do you remember that or hearing yep. that? And he came in and he survived and he was just very close to death. And um, the girl or somebody said at that, wrote him a letter and just said, you know, it was said that if he took one more breath, he would have died or something. And maybe his aorta would have exploded. And she said, I'm glad you didn't take that breath, you know. That's, uh, and, and uh, I'm thinking about your story and I'm just so glad you didn't step over the edge because look what you're doing here I mean in addition to being a dear person I know you're just a great guy and now all the people that you are, are helping and will help going forward I, I just think it's uh, great James and um, just really applaud you for the strength you're showing
3: well Paul hey not, not a day goes by Paul that I don't thank God that I'm still here. Uh, I didn't know in 2018 why I was going through what I went through. I didn't know why God was allowing me to go through it. But I knew he was there. I knew he was encouraging me to make it through. That I'd have something to share with other people once I made it through. And so now that's that's the work I do. I, have devoted the rest of my life, uh, the next chapter of my life to being this voice and this advocate for mental health awareness and suicide prevention. Uh, and I know I'm helping a lot of people so far with just the work I've posted on social media and the ability of people to talk with me and to hear my story. Uh, I'm going to set up, uh, Scheduled times for people to call me and talk with me on the phone if they need to, and I can, I can, uh, you know, be able to support them as best I can. So there's so much work to do, and and coming out of this pandemic, uh, all the experts are saying that our next pandemic will be one of mental health issues, um, especially for our school-age kids who've been locked down for two years and are still dealing with all the after effects of that uh i was talking to a young mother yesterday and her kids being bullied at school and kids are acting out uh they they just these two years have taken their toll and everyone is under stress and duress and so these next co- these next couple of decades most likely are going to be one where one mental health professionals are in short supply so Instead of waiting a couple weeks for your your appointment, now you're waiting up to six months for your appointment. We just don't have enough for everybody. And so this is why the work that I'm doing is so important because I'm trying to make sure people are in tune and in touch with themselves and reach out for help when they need it and before they get into a crisis moment.
1: Thank you, James, for all of that. Um, The foundation, again, is yourgiftoflife.org and the book is called Celebrating Your Gift of Life, and you can get that book on your website, and can you get it on Amazon? Yes, you can. You can
3: get it on all the Amazon and all the uh, online retailers. Uh, If you get it through my website or through my foundation site, I personally autograph and personally sign each copy that is ordered through there and directly mail it to you, so it comes directly to my home office, and I fulfilled those orders right there. And I put a nice little inscription in there, an ins- inspirational saying or something. Uh, Amazon isn't gonna do that for you, but I'll do that for you if you order it through uh, celebratingyourgiftoflife.com or yourgiftoflife.org websites. And then I love to stay in touch with people. So all the folks who've ordered books uh, through, through me personally we formed a nice community of people, hundreds and hundreds of them, who are all in this together and supporting each other, encouraging each other, and knowing that when the times are tough, you know, we can get through it by helping each other through it.
1: My thanks to James Donaldson for sharing his time with us today. And again, that website is yourgiftoflife.org. Where
3: would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos. She instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at kw.com.
1: Victoria R. Woodards is my guest, And she was elected mayor of Tacoma in 2017 and then re-elected in 2021. She is the 39th person to hold that position. Prior to that, she did serve on the Tacoma City Council. And during her tenure on the council, she worked to establish the City of Tacoma's Office of Equity and Human Rights. And she was also a member of the Board of Metro Parks, which we talk about during this interview. And one more thing, she served as president of the Tacoma Urban League. Now, what we want to do on this show is to feature more communities than just, let's say, Seattle and Bellevue. Uh, that's kind of where we're housed, and uh, obviously, that's generally who we pay more attention to. But um, I thought it would be important to get out and to reach out to other communities because so many different things are happening. For example, I had an interview with Wes Larson a couple of months ago, and uh, he is a real estate developer in Bremerton. He's incredible. He's incredible to see and hear what is happening in Bremerton. They have a Quincy Jones Center downtown, and a lot of great activities are growing around that. Well, that was then, but today, we're going to be focusing on Tacoma with the mayor of Tacoma, Victoria Woodards. What attracted you to politics in the first place? Why did you want to go into this very difficult arena?
0: <laughs> I only suckle because you couldn't have explained it any better. I have always been about service. I have always been happier when I have an opportunity to serve people, and so if you look at the track record of where I've worked and what I've done in my life, everything kind of points back to to being of service, you know, from my time in the military to even when I worked in the private sector when I first worked for an elected official, that's when I knew I said I never wanted to be an elected official, I liked having access to, to everything and being able to have some of the power, but not any of the responsibility. Uh, because being able to pick up the phone and call and say I'm calling some Harold Moss's office was very effective. But I also didn't have to sit on the dais for three and four hours dealing with the many issues that they did at the council level. And so I always thought I would potentially work for politicians and not necessarily be one, but but I had an opportunity to get engaged and I one of the things I'm a person of faith, so let me start there that's that's my belief and whatever anybody else has is up to them, but for me, I'm a person of faith and I one day said if I ever wanted to do anything, I might want to be a park commissioner and two days later, a position opened up on the Park Commission. And I kind of felt like, well, you put it out there in the universe, and it came back to you, and now you have to walk into this door. And I also am a person who believes that that you're given a gift, and whatever that gift is, that you must use it to uplift others. And so once I got on the park board and found out that I really did like policy, I also noticed, obviously, that there aren't a lot of people in Tacoma who look like me who are in politics and who have those opportunities. So... um, As I had the opportunity, I felt an obligation to to take the role. Now, it doesn't mean that I can speak for every African-American, but what it did mean is that at least there was an African-American woman in the room to at least be able to bring up the issues that affect African-Americans.
1: It's very upbeat how you talk about that, but I saw some of your State of the City address, and you certainly were looking at a really somber time and a really—that— you were governing in right now and you highlighted COVID, you know, hopefully we're getting out of COVID, but you know, it just doesn't seem to, we think it's out and then it comes back, but you know that better than me. And then of course, the homelessness, the gun violence, the uh, lack of affordable housing, policing and all that. And I noticed when you were interviewed on another uh, network, you were uh, saying something along the lines "It felt really good to get reelected, but you feel the heaviness of what you're doing. And I'd like you to, to talk about that a little bit, um, all those issues that you have on your plate right now.
0: This year, as I, you know, if we started to talk about my speech and what I would say, still in the midst of COVID and with all of these issues, homelessness, crime, affordable housing, you know, economic issues, I really struggled because... I wasn't going to be able to give that the world is great speech. Now, I I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a Debbie Downer speech and that I also provided hope in the speech. But it was it was a really tough speech for me to give because I didn't I couldn't say that we're going to be able to fix these things tomorrow. And I couldn't make a lot of flashy promises about how this is all going to go away because all of it's going to take time. I know by the emails that I get every day, by the people that I talk to in grocery stores and at the gas station and church, um, that these issues are hitting everyone in our community. I knew that I needed to be transparent and honest and truthful, but I also needed people to understand that I understand the weight of what the city is going through. So I think sometimes when you have an optimistic outlook, people think that sometimes you're just blind to what's happening. And so you're choosing not to even look at what's in front of you. And I wanted, wanted the community to know, because I get a lot of emails saying, do you even understand? You know, like I live in some glass house and I want to be really clear. I live in this community. I see, I drive around, I see the homeless, the homeless people in our community. I get the reports every day of what has transpired on the last shift for our police department. And, and also tell them why it is so difficult, right? When we talk about the rising crime, We didn't defund our police, but we did have a lot of police, um, as they did across the country, who decided either to retire or not not be police officers anymore. When I talked about the 50 positions that we have open, those are 50 fully funded police. If 50 qualified people walked up to the police department today ready to go to work, we could put them to work. So that's just an example of being really clear to share a community. This is what's happening. This is what we're doing. Talk about homelessness. We've doubled... We've doubled the amount of shelter.
1: When you talk about homelessness, and everybody does, I mean, we sit around the dinner table. I don't think there's a day that goes by that someone doesn't bring up, why can't we solve it? As a citizen, John Q. Public, you just hear the frustration from people who think that they have this solution. You know, why we can't come to grips and do a much better job in trying to really help diminish the situation we have now. But I think people have just lost, in some ways, faith that we're gonna be able to do anything about this. And I may be speaking more for uh, Seattle right now than I am Tacoma. I'm more yeah. familiar, with that's where I live. But nonetheless, what's right. your response I, to that?
0: I mean, it's daunting. I've given up to Seattle, I drive around, drive around my own city, and when you drive around and you see the encampment, and you see those houseless people in our community, I, I am grateful for a good part of our community who wants to provide help to our houseless community. But there are a lot of issues, and, and I was clear about one of them, and that is that while we've doubled the capacity, so one, we got to be realistic about the fact that COVID played a real part in exacerbating the issue of homelessness. I mean, it started before COVID with the affordability issue, but when we got into COVID and our shelters couldn't take in as many people because we had to follow CDC guidelines, a lot more people ended up on the streets with no help and support. Another issue for us here in Tacoma, and I'm sure this is everywhere, is the ability to stand up enough shelter, but also the right kind of. Of shelter. We've done really good with temporary emergency micro shelter sites in our community. Our stability center is one where people come and look at it as a model. One of the things that I'm really focused on is a low barrier shelter, or a, you know, I, I sanctioned encampment is a word that people use. But you know, instead of having you know five people here and ten people there and three people here, being able to put together in our city a couple of locations for sanctioned encampments. We found in standing up our stability site. But there are some people who have lived outside so long that they can't even go and live in a tent under a tent. Do you know what I mean? So we had to stand up for them outside so so they could deal with that. You know, a lot of people who are homeless, while some of them they have Alcohol problems, drug addiction problems, mental health problems. Um, there are some, there are a lot of people who are homeless who are working every day, um, who just can't afford to live in a place, or people who have who have been through um, times in their life where where they're coping with a lot of issues, and so sometimes it's I can't be indoor, and so you know that contributes to the mental health. But we also have to make sure that we have the type of shelter you know everybody's not ready to go into a tiny into a tiny home and and that works for them some people need a transitional space before they can get to that either not necessarily next level because there's not a direct path for everyone right it isn't just like you do step 1 step 2 step 3 step 4 and then you'll 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 fix it and it'll be perfect some people go from step 1 to step 5 or from step 3 to step 5 or some people have to do all of the steps right it's it's just like just like how people are different Unhoused people are different as well, and so. Um, but one of the issues in community is being able to stand up those kinds of sites without getting a lot of pushback with, from community. So I pleaded with my community in the state of the city: be an advocate, be an advocate. Every everywhere we've located a temporary emergency micro shelter, people have they've complained about it. But when it got there, they were like, "Is it even here yet?" Oh, it's here. I mean, it, it's not what people think it is. So. We've done a really good job of providing those wraparound services, and that's what we want to do. So for me, our next, our next focus, our focus right now is finding a place for a sanctioned encampment so that if people aren't ready to live indoors or live in a tiny home, they need to live in their tent, that there's a place for them to go and still be able to get garbage service and bathrooms and showers and case management and mental health and drug addiction support. So still giving them all the support they need, but in a way that they can receive
1: it. Let's switch to Tacoma as part of the booming community it is now in the residential and commercial. That's really good news on many fronts, but that has its challenges too, so we'll close out with that.
0: Now, remember when it was unacceptable, very few few places could you work and actually telework, and now government, the last one um, to think about teleworkers moving into telework, but that presents a problem. That presents a problem because now you don't have to live in the city that you work in. You can live somewhere else. And Tacoma boasts a really great quality of life. We have an award-winning park system. We have um, an 89-plus percent graduation rate. Um, In some instances, it's still affordable than other places. But what that does in that growth is it displaces a lot of the people who are living here. And that's where we also have to focus. You know, I always say, I'm a little girl who grew up poor in Tacoma. But at least as a as a child growing up in Tacoma, I lived in every part of Tacoma because there was something affordable in every part of Tacoma. And so, as we look at our affordable housing action strategy and how we're going to continue to make Tacoma affordable, that's where we've got to. That's where that's where we've got to focus our attention. That's where we're going to solve the crisis of homelessness because it's not just about putting people into encampments and into shelter spaces. It's about getting people into a place that they can can afford. It's about doing things like we did with. Um, Pierce County and Lakewood by purchasing a hotel, and then it's a shelter for now. But in two years, it will become permanent supportive housing. People who make seven hundred dollars a month, or you know, even some of our people who who actually um, who actually work in the service industry. So you think about servers and restaurants; they can't. You think some of our teachers and firefighters and police officers can't even afford to live in the city. And so, making sure that we have a place for everyone. Um, through our affordable housing action strategy and money that we have voted to put um, aside to help people build things that are affordable. And again, I say this, not 80% AMI, because that's still not affordable, but things at 50% AMI, which is what minimum wage looks like. Appreciate the opportunity and would love an opportunity to come back and talk about all the great things uh, about Tacoma. I haven't met a person who hasn't been to Tacoma in a long time or somebody who's come here for the first time who doesn't go, oh my God, I didn't know Tacoma was like this or this isn't a Tacoma I remember. We, we want people to know that Tacoma is open for business, that we are a community that loves and cares for the people who live here.
1: My thanks to Mayor Victoria Woodards, and we certainly do wish her well going forward. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host. I would like to thank James Donaldson for coming on the air today and talking about some of his very personal issues. I think a lot of people will benefit from his discussion. He's a big man, already seven foot two, but a bigger man in terms of what he is doing to help people out. And of course, Victoria Woodards, the mayor of Tacoma, Well into her second term now. Wish her the very best going forward. Tacoma is very lucky to have her. So Voices of Experience airs at 3 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday afternoons and repeated on Sundays at 11 o'clock a.m. Let's go with the quote of the week. Very timely. Ideology separates us. Dreams and anguish bring us together. Eugene Liseo.
0: You've been listening to the Voices of Experience radio network. No promotional fees have been paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's
2: 425-653-1166. And finally, experience is our best teacher.